In this week's passage, after being handed over to the authorities, Jesus is condemned by them for saying that he, what he has already demonstrated to be true in his own ministry, that he is the divine Lord, the Son of God and the very Messiah come to save the people from their sins. The Jews, understanding precisely Jesus' claim to divinity, accuse him of blasphemy. This is a crucial text for us today, for the world to face today, because what it comes down to is whether or not Jesus was actually blaspheming or not. Is he the Son of God or is he not? Is he divine or is he not? You'll see see clearly there is no debate about what Jesus' claims are in this passage, only on whether or not his claims are true. The authorities make their own decision. The question for us today is what will we decide about who Jesus claimed to be? Let's read our passage together now. Uh, But before we read, let me go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. Lord, we pray that uh, as you do speak to us through your word, that you would accomplish everything that you set out to do by your spirit. Convict us where we need convicting. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Edify and equip us, we pray, so that you would be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark 14, verses 53 to 72. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. 
And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. There are two different scenes in this passage, one inside and one outside, both happening simultaneously. Uh, Each event is helpfully broken up into a paragraph each, so I'm just going to have one point per paragraph. So first we're going to look at Jesus's trial, and then we're going to consider Peter's denial. First, Jesus's trial. Jesus's trial. And the first thing to know about this trial is that you can just go ahead if you want to and wrote trial in quotes because this is not what we would think of as a just trial. There are all kinds of things wrong with it. The first thing I want you to notice is that it's anything but fair. Mark makes this clear with his own note in verse 55. He says, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. In other words, as one commentator said, the charge was not yet decided, but the verdict was already in. They had decided in advance that they wanted to put him to death, and so what they did when they got everyone in a room was basically say, who can come up with a reason for us to put this man to death? As I already mentioned, they were seeking to kill him, as it says in the beginning of the chapter, chapter 14, verse 1. There are actually a few other details that tell us that this is not a a normal or a just hearing. A just court seem uh, uh, normally determines to declare someone as innocent or as guilty based on evidence. But they're not open to Jesus being innocent at all. What you might not have known is that this group, this is the Sanhedrin, in case you wanted to know, it's the highest authority in the Jewish lands made up of of the three parties mentioned, uh, chief priests, scribes, Pharisees. There's about 71 of them all meeting. Well, this group had rules written in the Mishnah about uh, when and how they go about business. And a few of those rules that are broken in this passage are that they're not supposed to meet uh, in the middle of the night, And they're not supposed to meet during holidays like, for example, Passover. They're also typically supposed to meet inside of a a specific stone-hewn courtroom, but they aren't at a courthouse at all. They're actually at the personal home of the high priest, Caiaphas. All of these things show us that this is much more of a mob gathering than it is a clear and just trial or a way to determine the guilt or the innocence of a man. These are the most powerful in the land seeking a way to justify the killing of the innocent. And this is clear in the way that they try to provide witnesses against Jesus. Uh, None of them stand. It says many bore false witnesses, but they didn't agree with one another. Uh, Mark states that multiple times to emphasize just the chaos, I think, of the room and to show that this was happening over and over again. People would come before them and say something about Jesus, but there wouldn't be a second or a third witness. 
A witness, by the way, just means uh, testimony or to testify. Uh, it's, the, it's the word that actually, the Greek word that we get martyr from, so or martyrdom, uh, and that's because Christians, early Christians who were persecuted for their faith, testified about Jesus Christ. And those, those words then merged in history, and that became the more common usage. But in Old Testament law, if you were to bring an accusation against someone, it was required in Deuteronomy, and you can read about this in Deuteronomy 19, uh, that a credible testimony required two or three witnesses. And so that's just not even happening here for the things that they are bringing up. Uh, but we do get an example of the kinds of things that they were saying about Jesus. As the room is held in session, they would ask for a witness. Someone would stand up and say something like what we read in verse 58. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And this is a, a bit of a confusing statement. Uh, and the reason it's confusing is because we see similar statements like this in different places in the New Testament. And Jesus, in fact, did say similar things, though not exactly. Uh, for example, back in chapter 13, verse 2, as they were leaving the temple, what did he say to his disciples? But there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Uh, but the accusation in verse 58 is also referred to elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, for example, in John 2.19, Jesus says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then if you fast forward in Mark's own gospel, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, one of the things that people ridicule him for is this idea. They say, aha, in 15.29, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So it appears that Jesus did actually say something like this. Uh, now, the New Testament authors understand uh, rightly what Jesus is saying, and they understand that he is referring to his own body, fill, full of the Spirit, and then resurrected in three days, the, the new temple being the church, the body of the believers in which the Holy Spirit dwells within. Uh, but these, these Jewish leaders didn't have that understanding of what he said yet. They might have been taking his uh, statements literally. But whatever the case... Uh, it's not really something you can condemn someone to death for if it's a mere threat against the temple, if he was doing that physically. And secondly, they would still have to agree on what he said exactly, which it seems like they weren't able to do. Uh, one brief application, I think, from this misunderstanding of the Jews in some of Jesus' teachings, uh, I think can be applied helpfully for people who are uh, uh, seeking to know or examine Christianity today. Uh, let me just tell you that if you want to learn the truths about Christianity and you're exploring what the faith looks like, to listen to the explanations of Christians who believe in the Bible and know how to understand and interpret it. Uh, don't go to other critics because most of the time they don't properly understand it and they mix up the meaning of certain words. Uh, if you want to examine something, you should hear the best arguments for it. So I would encourage you to do the same when it comes to the Bible. So if this is actually something Jesus said, how come it is considered a false witness? Uh, well, like I said, they either couldn't agree exactly what Jesus said, uh, or they just simply didn't have enough people agreeing, which to me is kind of funny. This seems like a crooked court anyway. Why didn't they have just people lie and 
agree with each other, but for whatever reason, that didn't seem to happen. I don't know if you have ever been accused of something falsely before. Uh, I think many of us probably have. And maybe if you haven't in real life, perhaps you have playing one of those uh, social experiment type of games like Mafia or Secret Hitler. Do you know about these games? These games are so fun and so frustrating at the same, at the same time. Uh, they are basically uh, arranged around there's one person in a group who is the bad guy, the Mafia or Secret Hitler. And you have to determine who that is, get the entire group to agree with you, and then condemn that person. And the crazy thing about this game is, or these games, is that there's pretty much no rules. <laughs> so you can say the most ridiculous things out of left field, but if it's convincing and you get people to agree with you, then you can actually just pick off everyone in the group one at a time. And you might be the bad guy or you might not. Uh, anyway, if you have been in this game like me, you've been incredibly frustrated when people are just throwing accusations at you that are based on nothing. Well, one thing that is interesting is when you are accused of something falsely, uh, it's incredibly difficult to not respond. Uh, and yet Jesus here, when he's accused, responds with complete silence. That's what happens in verses 60 and 61. Uh, and then uh, his silence, by the way, if he had spoken, that might have given some kind of credibility to the false accusations. So the high priest, who is the head honcho, he's the leader of the entire group, is saying, what have you to say about all these false accusations? And so Jesus remains silent, as he does in front of Pilate in chapter 15, which we'll read about next week. And that discipline amazes Pilate that he's silent through these accusations against him. The burden is on them to bring a credible charge, which they are unable to do. But Jesus isn't just exercising incredible self-control by doing this. He's also fulfilling a very important prophecy from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 7. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It's a fitting description of Jesus in this crooked court. The lamb of God led to the slaughter. Jesus was proving himself to be the suffering servant spoken of by Isaiah. And something that struck me just this morning in reading the passage Look at verse 53, the very first verse in this passage. And they led Jesus to the high priest. The Lamb of God being led to the high priest. The one who historically provides the sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. Jesus here is now being led to the high priest moments before being handed over for his crucifixion. Jesus is proving, again, his, the truthfulness of the prophets as well as his own predictions. And we know that from chapter 10, verses 33 and 34. Uh, Jesus is an amazing example for us uh, in this way. Uh, if there's any application, I think, from our own lives from these events, it's that sometimes a godly way to respond to insults and false accusations is silence. 
which is not an easy task. Uh, the tongue is, I think, especially difficult to tame. James, in his letter, says that uh, the tongue is like the bit in a horse's mouth that turns a horse. He says it's like a small rudder that guides a large ship. The tongue is such a small member of the body, but it controls the, your entire life. And if not tamed, can start a fire ablaze in a forest with a spark. Now, brothers and sisters, wisdom and godliness is often seen by the way we use our speech. Your speech is usually an outpouring of the things on your heart. So, what does your speech tell you about what's on your heart? To apply it even further, I think we should be especially careful in our digital age in the way that we communicate through technology because we live in a world that is dominated by written technology, and frankly, it's just much easier to write something out and hit send than it is to say something to someone directly. We should all be regularly asking ourselves whether or not we can detect the fruits of the Spirit in our speech. I always need a reminder to be careful with responding too quickly, but especially, especially when the person you're responding to is hostile towards you. Listen to Proverbs 26.4. It says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like one yourself. Proverbs 26.21. As a charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. Do you want less strife in your life? Then don't quarrel as much. There are deeper reasons Jesus is silent as I mentioned, but he certainly sets an example for godly self-control in this courtroom with no one there to defend him. If we are to model our own lives after Christ, we must tame the tongue, especially when faced with things like gossip, false accusation, or insults. So why did Jesus speak at all, you might be asking? Couldn't, couldn't he just have remained silent? They would not have found an accusation against him, and then he could have just been released. It looks like that might have been the case. Why did he have to answer the high priest in verse 62? Well, the reason is because the dynamic of the hearing changes. Uh, when false accusations are being proposed, you don't have to answer to them. But when asked specifically by uh, the high priest, you are required to under oath, uh, much like the judge asking a direct question. In this case, once the high priest asked Jesus this question so directly, uh, it would have been a sign of guilt were he to remain silent. And so Jesus answers his question. And the, the question that the high priest asks is an incredibly precise one. There's not really any way to get around it in verse 61. He says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Let's just get to the bottom of this here and now. And the title, son of the blessed, by the way, uh, in case you didn't recognize it, uh, Jews out of reverence for God, uh, typically try to provide alternatives for the name of God. Uh, so instead of using the revealed name to Moses from the burning bush, Yahweh, uh, they used a substitute like this phrase, the blessed. Uh, it's just another way to say, though, the God of Israel. So they, he's asking him, are you the son of the God of Israel? And Jesus answers in verse 62. Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man 
seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? The response of the high priest pretty much tells us everything we need to know about what Jesus' response meant. Uh, But in case you missed it, Jesus includes in his response reference to two very specific and very important Old Testament verses, uh, both of which we've covered in the past going through Mark. Jesus has mentioned them in his ministry. Uh, The first being Psalm 110, verse 1, which we read at the beginning of the service. It's the most famous Old Testament verse in the New Testament, meaning it's referred to or quoted in the New Testament more than any other verse. Jesus uh, uses the verse to show uh, the Pharisees and the scribes that David calls the Messiah, the Christ, Lord. And that person is on the right hand of God. Uh, The seat of power is just like son of the blessed. It's another uh, synonym for the God of Israel. Jesus is uh, is using his own term there to respond. Uh, The second verse Jesus refers to is Daniel 7, 13. And he does so just by mentioning this prophecy in which Christ is Christ, which means Messiah, the anointed one, is referred to as the son of man. And it's the son of man that is specifically describes the way that God comes to judge the earth at the end of all time. The Son of Man is the one in Revelation 1, whose voice is like a roar of many waters, whose eyes is like flaming fire, whose words is like a two-edged sword. He's the one that says, I am the first and the last and the living one. In Revelation, he says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. By, by using this title, Jesus is claiming that he is the fulfillment of God's end time plans, that he is God's son. But that's the reason the high priest tears his garments and so calls for the room to acknowledge Jesus' blasphemy is what they call it. I don't know if you've ever heard someone say something like, you know, Uh, actually, Jesus never said that he was God in the New Testament or in the Gospels. Uh, My guess, if you haven't heard this, you'll probably hear it at some point. I've heard lay people say this all the way up to New Testament scholars, liberal scholars like Bart Ehrman say it. Uh, Kids, especially as you grow, most likely someone will say this to you. Jesus never claimed to be God. And I just want to point out that this is one of the clearest places one of many clear places, frankly, that you can point people to, Mark 14, in which Jesus' enemies understand that Jesus is claiming to be God here in these passages. That's what blasphemy means. It's a claim to be equal with God or a claim to be glorified or receive God's glory yourself. In John 5, Jesus calls God his Father, And the Jews respond that way by calling it blasphemy because they say, you in saying this, make yourself equal to God. I'm probably uh, preaching to the choir about this issue. I understand that. But I just want you to look at the response of what the high priest says to Jesus. If Jesus' answer was somehow erased from this passage, we would still know what Jesus was claiming. Uh, Even Jesus' enemies knew what he was saying. What about the rest of the room? Was this just the high priest's opinion? The text says they all condemned him. 
as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. And I think Mark is describing this event in a way that intentionally refers to Isaiah 50, verse 6, which says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. This is the first time in Mark's gospel that a confession like this comes from Jesus' own mouth. So in the very beginning of the book, Mark is very clear. Uh, The gospel about Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ. Uh, And then Peter makes the first kind of uh, confession that Jesus is the Christ in chapter 8. But Jesus himself has not said it so directly. And up to this point, every time someone else has accurately uh, seen him for who he is, he has basically told them not to tell anyone or to keep it quiet. That's something that we refer to as the messianic secret. But at this point, there is no longer a need for it. Jesus is where he's supposed to be before the group that would deliver him over to death. The irony, of course, is that if it were any other man saying the things that Jesus said, it would be blasphemy. Uh, Because it is Jesus, though, it is a true statement. The high priest who uses modest language to refer to God now calls the very Son of God a liar to his face and rouses a crowd to beat him and kill him. An even greater irony for you, if you go back to Deuteronomy 19, verses 18 and 19, it describes this courtroom procedure, and it even articulates what to do in the account of false witnesses and false accusations. It says, The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. The irony here is these false accusations are done in order to kill Jesus when what really should happen is the Jewish leaders should see their own blasphemy in discrediting Jesus and therefore would be punished for breaking one of the Ten Commandments to not bear false witness against your brother. It's a gross picture of injustice, And yet, at the same time, it's the fulfillment of Jesus' words back in chapter 10, 33, and 34. He said, The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Point one is Jesus' trial. Point two is Peter's denial. Peter's denial. Uh, I think it's clear in the way that Mark recorded these events that they happened simultaneously at the same time. That's the reason Mark introduces Peter at the courtyard in verse 54, and then he returns to him later in verse 66. It's a literary way of basically saying, meanwhile, while this is happening in the courtyard, Peter is undergoing a cross-examination of his own. And Peter is totally lost at this point. He doesn't know what to do. It appears he's attempting to stay close to Jesus to see what will happen, but he's afraid to be associated with him at the same time. He's following Christ at a distance. Gone is his confidence to lay his life down for Jesus rather than deny him. And you might be tempted to read these verses and have hope, uh, seeing Peter 
following Jesus to the courtyard. Faithful Peter, there until the very end. But what's Peter's plan? Was Peter planning on organizing a rescue party, sneaking in to stealthily sneak Jesus away, turn himself in with Jesus so that Jesus didn't have to go through it alone? None of these things were on Peter's mind. He is, I think, merely curious to see how things unfold. So he follows Jesus at a distance, and then he warms himself by the fire of the guards of the high priest, the very guards of the people that arrested his Lord he shares the warmth with. I think this is the lowest moment in Peter's life. For everything he does, these moments are the saddest. He already fled during Jesus' arrest. He clearly doesn't have much of a plan. He's just staying close enough to see what will happen. He is nearby, but not at his side. I think there are people today who might describe their own relationship with Jesus in similar terms. Just off at a distance. Maybe you're exploring Christianity and you want to kind of see how things play out. uh, See what others think of Christ first while keeping him at a distance. Uh, Friend, if that's you, things don't go well for Peter, and they won't go well for you either. Peter's already been told by Jesus that he would deny him three times. He even said before the rooster crowed twice that it would happen. And we see that play out in these verses, and you'll notice as Peter denies Jesus three times, uh, the situation escalates. First, he's confronted by a servant of the high priest, which just links these two interrogations together even more closely. Jesus being examined by the high priest, Peter by one of the servants of the high priest, a servant girl. And he not just denies what she says, he says he doesn't even know what she's speaking about. And then when the girl goes to the bystanders, not even speaking to Peter directly, he then denies what she's saying. No longer pretending not to know, just denying it. And then finally, when the bystanders follow him out into the gateway, they recognize uh, his accent Uh, We know from another gospel, and so they recognize that he is a Galilean, and therefore they associate him with Jesus. They say, you must be one of his disciples, and then Peter snaps. Peter reaches the end of himself in verse 71. He invokes uh, curse and swears, Uh, and these things are two different actions. Uh, Neither one means that he is uttering four-letter words uh, or anything like that. Uh, To curse uh, would be to say something like, Let me be cursed if what I'm saying is not true. Or let God curse me. Uh, It was a common way to communicate the seriousness with which you were taking something. Uh, It'd be like saying, if what I say is false, let me just be struck down by God today. So he's saying a curse about himself, but not only that, he also swears, meaning again, not using uh, foul language like we would think, but he's making an oath. In this way, he is promising to others that he's not lying. Uh, Examples of this in the Bible we see, uh, they're usually done in the name of God, and they'll sound something like this. God is my witness that what I'm saying is true. Uh, Not only is Peter cursing and swearing falsely, but he's denying his Lord in the process. Peter's weakness here is a reminder to us 
that we're only as strong as our greatest weakness. Fear of man in this moment is Peter's Achilles heel. He takes very little. It, it takes very little for him to fold completely under pressure. Uh, and you might ask, what kind of pressure does he face here? The word of a servant girl. Uh, basically, someone who didn't really have a, a voice in society. Uh, the ancient world is very different from our own. You know, our, our society, 2,000 years removed. The reality was, in that day and age, servant girls, uh, they were not seen as credible. Uh, if they were to appear in courts, they weren't given things like voting rights or anything like that. Uh, this, is, this normally would be the type of person uh, that would be the smallest possible threat to anyone. I think this application is especially important for us when we remember that Peter is the best of the disciples, uh, right? He's always first in line to Jesus. He was one of the three uh, entitled disciples to witness Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, to spend more time with him privately in the garden. So it can't be said that if you are more godly or more mature or more passionate than your other Christian friends, that you won't stumble. Uh, given the right circumstances, any one of us uh, might give into our weaknesses. Uh, the application for Christians today is the same as Jesus' instructions to Peter in the garden to keep watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, Peter's ability, inability to stay awake in the garden, I think, was just a preview, because it happened three times, to this threefold denial. And if it can happen to Peter, then it can happen to any one of us. Or perhaps you already give yourself to the fear of man. Uh, for you, this passage, I think, speaks hope. For as big of a failure as Peter was, there's great hope in the very last verse of the passage. Upon hearing the second crow of the rooster, it's tragic uh, what happens. Uh, Peter immediately remembers Christ's words to him, realized everything that had happened. The recognition of his own guilt causes him to break down and to weep. And the, and the word there is an emphatic one. Uh, so you could translate it, he wept bitterly or uncontrollably. In Peter's brokenness, we see the hope of restoration. Because another thing Mark is doing in this passage is highlighting the stark contrast between Peter and Judas. Two very different disciples. But in both stories of their failures, both of which were predicted by Jesus, by the way, they're the only ones named. In both stories, Jesus predicts it ahead of time. In both stories, they fall away from Jesus. But Mark is completely silent about what happened to Judas or how he responded after betraying Jesus. It's just a transaction. There's no emotion. This betrayal is, his betrayal is deceptive. But Peter's, Peter behaves like a true disciple, like a human. Despite denying the Lord, he's overcome with the burden of his own sin. He weeps. It's a sign of godly sorrow and shock over what he had done. I think it's safe to say that Peter was sincere when he promised to lay his life down for Jesus. Uh, many of us are sincere when we're confident, uh, but most likely we're all weaker than we think. Peter comes to realize that. His weeping gives way to Christ's forgiveness and restoration after he is resurrected. 
And Peter, unlike Judas, remains a disciple of Jesus. He goes on to do amazing things in the book of Acts. And that's how the gospel works. Left to ourselves, we are stuck in our sinful ways. We are hopeless to save ourselves because we're born into sin and deserving God's just wrath. But because of the sinless work of Christ and his death on the cross, we can be forgiven our sins, atoned for, even sins that are as great as Peter's. We're meant to see the enormous divide between Peter and Jesus as a comparison between our weakness and Christ's will. Jesus faced a group of the most powerful, educated, and respected group in the land. Peter faced their servants and unnamed guards. Jesus was falsely accused, yet said nothing. Peter was rightly accused and repeatedly lied and cursed. Jesus was beaten, mocked, and spit upon. Peter only received the blows of his own pride. Final application for this morning. Don't be ashamed of being a Christian. Don't be ashamed of being a follower of Jesus. And don't be surprised if the world doesn't like you for it. Uh, we, we live, I think, in a relatively peaceful place and time. I think that's part of the Lord's grace. And that period of grace may come to an end someday. Uh, but the world has never treated Christ kindly or his followers. Don't be ashamed of being a Christian. It's easy to say, and I recognize it's easy for me to say, up here in a room with you, really hard to do uh, when you're in conversations with family members or with coworkers or with non-Christian friends. Uh, it's very easy to shy away from telling people about your faith or your Lord. It's easy to fear people more than God. They beat and spit on Jesus. So why would we expect the world to treat his followers any different? There's a time for silence. Uh, I've already made that application. Uh, but there may also be times where you can't avoid in, to answer. When push comes to shove, uh, there may come a time where you cannot lie. But remember what Jesus said in Mark 8:38. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I wonder if Peter remembered Jesus telling him those words when he heard the second crow. Mankind was created to testify to who God is. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of of God. Uh, we are to reflect his character and, and his glory, and it's a testimony that we all fail to give. In our sinful and broken lives, we have all been false witnesses at one time or another. If there's anything this passage teaches us, it's that we need another to stand in our place. We need the perfect Savior that Jesus is, believing in his word and giving your life over to him means that we don't need to fear God's wrath against our sin. It means we stand, when we stand before God in judgment, Jesus Christ himself will testify on our behalf.
we, the church, are called to be a witness to the world. We're called to take up our cross and follow Jesus. We're not promised that a cross will be avoided, but we are called to carry one. We live in a, a time of peace, like I said, but that time may run out. Dear friends, no matter what we face in life, we know that if we align ourselves with Jesus, we will have life beyond the grave, beyond whatever affliction comes our way in this life. Ask the Lord, therefore, to give you strength to live your life unashamedly for Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray, asking for your mercy to us. We confess that we are weak, that we have denied you, like Peter, many times in our lives. But Lord, we, we trust in your son Jesus and the ransom he paid for us. The one who gave true testimony in his own life about you, who laid his life down on our behalf. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful to him. We pray these things in his name. Amen.